Good morning. Are we all here? Is this is this us? 
today. Usually this is the light side. You guys do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Uh, if you've been with us this morning, you know already that Dean Birch is with us, and he'll be our uh, speaker this morning. Following the worship hour, we'll have a 10-minute break, which is our tradition, and then regather uh, when you hear the music for our communion service. That means no choir and no evening service uh, this evening. Prayer meeting will be Wednesday at 7. Uh, you have Andrea's number there for the prayer chain. This Saturday, October 13, uh, outing at Upland Hills Farm in Oxford uh, for a family fun day. Uh, you'll see the uh, details and things there posted on the helps board. That's the one right outside of this door. Uh, sign up if you're going to be attending that. New Acts and Facts and Free Grace Broadcaster are here and available on the foyer table. Anything else that I've missed this morning? Forgotten? Our scripture for meditation this morning is found in Psalm 119. Read 25 through 32. Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless our service this morning. 
Ed, would you open, open for us today? Thanks. morning. Will you take your brown hymnal and turn to number 231, 231 in the brown? Actually, someone approached me on Wednesday about the song this morning. 
So he beat everyone's hand today, I'm sorry. If you were here on Wednesday night, you may have beat him, but uh, Pastor George <laughs> asked me on Wednesday about him today. So, 481 in the brown, correct? 481 in the brown. And Pastor, would you like to share the reason? Well, I, I was thinking about uh, <coughs> other tune he does not it's he does it's, he doesn't want the, the one the he wants this one yes yes he wants this one yes we talked about that too <laughs> this one it says stand up right in the title i'm not i'm gonna make you but you know it stands stand up right in the title so <laughs> this one is not very familiar
Our scripture reading this morning is 2 Timothy, chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 14 through 26. And it's a new month, I don't know if I have a new reader, and if I do, are they here? <laughs> Nobody's here, okay, I'm, I'm the default, so. 2 Timothy. The text, Second Timothy, two, fourteen through twenty-six. Mm-hmm. Let's stand as we read together. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Harmonius and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from, the, from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Excuse me. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. ask that the Lord would bless the reading of his word. You take your brown hymnals again and turn to number 379, 379 in the brown.
We want to take a love gift for our speaker today, so as you're exiting, please remember to d- deposit that in the offering box as you, as you leave. We're happy to have Dean and Kathy Birch with us this morning. Our missionaries to, I was going to say, a certain spot, but I can't do that. These all over the world, as we heard from the Sunday School Hour, literally. I mean, he's just everywhere. And um, that's part of his ministry. He explained that this morning. And uh, Dean is going to come and speak to us now. And he tells me he's going to speak on the Lord's table. So give him your attention. We're so thankful that they can be with us today. Brother Dean, come. I put some fresh water for you here. Well, good morning. Some of the younger people go, oh, no, not him again. <laughs> thought we only had to put up with him in the summer. <clears throat> well, as Pastor mentioned, um, well, actually, a couple weeks ago, we were teaching in, uh, in Ecuador, and one of the subjects I was covering was dealing with the subject of the ordinances uh, as part of our pastoral training program, and I thought it... Maybe a good idea to look at that a little bit this morning. Now, again, when I use the word ordinances, that's a, it's pretty much a Baptist term. Uh, you know, I'm big on, I'm tired, I guess, sometimes of just people using terms and not even knowing what they mean or why they use them. You know, we do that a lot, especially in our churches. We develop our own vocabulary where we use words and we're not even really sure what they mean. Like, I've asked people, like, why do we call it ordinances? And people say, oh. Uh, I, I don't really know. Well, first of all, there's another word that's often used, and that is the word sacrament. And I, some of you kind of cringe maybe when you hear the word sacrament because you think, oh, that's, that's a Catholic word. And the answer is, no, it's not. It's not a Catholic word. They've taken it, but it's not a Catholic word. It's not a Roman Catholic word. The word sacrament just means something sacred. So when we talk about participating in, in a sacrament. We're basically participating in something sacred, something that's holy. And I don't know about you, but I'm not against that. I'm not against participating in something that's sacred or holy. However, I also would agree I would not want to use the word sacrament just simply because of what it conveys. We do need to be careful with terminology. You know, at one point in time, the word sacrament was probably fine, but today it probably conveys things with which I would not agree. The idea of actually conveying grace. I mean, you do it, therefore, because that's how you become a Christian or something like that, which seems to be conveyed with this uh, the way the word sacrament is used today. Now, I was talking with somebody about this recently, and if you ask me, here, here's a good question you could ask me. Dean, are you a fundamentalist? Hmm. My answer to that question is probably going to be a question, and that is, what do you mean? What do you mean by the term fundamentalist? I've got a big bookshelf, I've got a lot of bookshelves at home, and I've got a book about this thick, white cover with red letters down the side called The Fundamentals. And there's some articles in that with which you and I would be in total agreement. You see, 100 years ago, if you asked me if I were a fundamentalist, I would not even blink an eye, and I would say yes. Because the word fundamentalist carried the idea of, I believe in the inerrancy and inspiration of the scriptures. I believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. I believe in the deity of Christ. I believe in a literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. I believe that he will come again. Those were the fundamentals of the faith. And therefore, I would have heartily say, I'm a fundamentalist. 
But today, to say I'm a fundamentalist may mean something very different to some. In fact, for me to say I'm a fundamentalist, some of you would say, no, you're not. You have facial hair. Because in our day, the word fundamentalist has taken on other meanings, and therefore we do need to be careful with our terminology. So we call these things, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, we call them ordinances simply because we think of the word ordained. They were ordained by God through Jesus Christ. As Baptists, we believe in two. Now, there are some who believe in three ordinances, foot washing being a third. We don't have time to talk about that this morning. Um, don't even have time to get our feet wet with that. That was a joke. Um, oh, come on. <laughs> Roman Catholics would probably say there are seven of these. But we would hold the two, one being baptism, because Jesus ordained that. Remember the Great Commission? Go therefore into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Jesus ordained that and he also ordained the practice of what we call the Lord's Supper. He said, do this in remembrance of me. In fact, we'll see that in a few moments. In fact, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It seems to be somewhat the normative passage to which we often turn when we are looking at the subject of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I will read a somewhat lengthy portion, but that's okay. You're better off hearing from God than you are hearing from me anyway. So I'm going to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Um, many of you have heard me say many times that chapter breaks and verse divisions in our Bibles are not inspired. Um, I think if we could redo it, I think chapter 11 and verse 17 would be a good place for another chapter break as he begins dealing with a new subject here in this passage. I'm going to read starting in verse 17. I read from the ESV. I hope that's acceptable. If not, somebody will probably tell me afterwards. Um, but starting in verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes under divine inspiration, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I do want you to notice the sternness of Paul's words there. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. 
But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. I don't know about you, but when I read those last words, I think, ah, why didn't you write it? I would have loved to know what the other things were that Paul wanted to tell them, but he decided to wait until he got there. I guess someday we'll find out. Let's pray together before we look more deeply at this passage. Our Heavenly Father, this is your word. And it's your word for us this morning. Lord, I don't know what these different struggles are and different things we're dealing with, people in this room, different things we've come carrying with us this morning, but I pray that somehow you would enable us to, to check all of those things that distract us. Just check them at the door and enable us to focus in and hear from you this morning. Pray, as I often do, that I would decrease so that Jesus would increase, that you ultimately would be the one who is our teacher this morning. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my and all of our hearts this morning would be right and pleasing and even acceptable to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I mentioned we're going to look at the subject of the Lord's Supper this morning. And you know, I often, I'm not going to ask this question. Well, I'm going to throw it out rhetorically. But I wonder, just think for a moment, how many times in your life have you taken up the Lord's Supper? Don't answer that. But just think about it. How many times in your life have you done what we're about to do together this morning? It's a good thing, and it's a good thing that we do it again and again and again, and we'll look at why in a moment. You know, we have a cliche in American English where we say, familiarity breeds contempt. You ever heard of that? Well, when, I hope it comes to, when it comes to things of God, I hope familiarity doesn't bring contempt, but I do greatly fear that familiarity brings apathy. We will sing the words, amazing grace, and honestly, we're not so amazed by grace, oftentimes. I'll be honest, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning, and if I would be perfectly candid with you, there have been many times in my Christian life, I'm not talking about before I was a Christian, I'm talking about since I've been a Christian, since I've served as a pastoral ministry, since I've been involved in missions, there have been many times where we've come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper where frankly, between you and me, I was not that excited about it. It was just something we do. We tack it on the end of the service. Those of you who know my background, I'd probably more, be more excited to watch a replay of the U.S. hockey team beating the Soviet Union on Friday February 22, 1980, in Lake Placid, New York. Or I'm more excited to watch a replay of Greg LeMond winning the Tour de France on that final stage in that time trial that day. I'm sorry, Tiger fans, but I'd love to watch a replay of Yankees winning the World Series again and again and again and again and again and again. I mean, again, you win so many times it becomes boring, I guess. Of course, I'm kidding a little bit, but I'm not kidding when it comes to the Lord's Supper because many times it's like, oh yeah, Sunday's Lord's Supper, so that means a few extra minutes at the end, and it means we don't have service tonight, and it means, and it means, this is something God has given us to do. Therefore, we can't be flippant about this. 
This is a big deal. I mentioned earlier terminology. We do need to be familiar with the terminology. Some people say, why do we call it the Lord's Supper? I don't know if you noticed when I was reading in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, when you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. I mean, it's right out of our passage. It says the Lord's Supper. And that's why oftentimes we call it that. I think earlier I heard it referred to as the Lord's Table. Where'd that come from? Well, that's back in the previous chapter. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 21, you see a reference to it being called the Lord's Table. How many of us have ever heard it called communion? Where'd that come from? Well, I don't have it in front of me because I have an ESV, but do any of you have a King James? Okay, forget that. Uh, I'm, at, I'm at with you right now. Go back to chapter 10 for a moment. I mean, for some of you, it might just be in the same page, but if you go back to chapter 10 and verse 16... The cup of blessing that, now my ESV says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? I've emphasized the word participation. The old King James, anybody know what the word is that was used there? I'll give you a hint, it starts with a C. Communion. And that's where the term comes from. It's a biblical term. I mean, that's the way the King James translators translate it. The cup of blessing, is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? So we say we come together for communion. Now, I'm not suggesting we should, if, if we use the ESV, we should say, hey, this Sunday we're going to come together for participation. That probably wouldn't convey the same meaning. It's literally the word koinonia, which is often translated fellowship. We're coming together Sunday for fellowship. Now, okay. But that's where we use the word communion. Oh, here's another word. Do you ever hear the word Eucharist? And some of you are saying, yeah, yeah, that's one of them that are Roman Catholic words, isn't it? Well, look at chapter 11, please. Verse 24. And when he had given thanks. See those words, given thanks? Mr. Luke probably has his little handy-dandy olive tree if he touched it and could see what the Greek word is there. The Greek word for given thanks is, guess what the word is? It's the verb eucharisteo. Eucharist. The word eucharist just means give thanks. I'm not against giving thanks. Are any of you against giving thanks? But again, now we're back to that terminology thing where when you use, use the word Eucharist in today's day and age, it conveys, it has baggage with which probably you and I would not want to associate. And therefore, while the word itself is just a great word and I would be happy to give thanks, that's the word here, I probably don't like using it because of what it would convey to people. The early church probably called it an agape feast. That got them in trouble. Agape means love and say, hey, we're going to come together for a love feast. That had some, well, entailments. In fact, if you study the early church, some of the, some of the first hatred directed toward the early church was because they were considered to be both immoral and cannibalistic. And you say, how could the early church be considered immoral or cannibalistic? Answer, because of the practice of the Lord's Supper. Because they came together for a love feast, which everybody assumed was immorality. And they were talking about eating body and drinking blood. Well, <laughs> do the math. They probably call it an agape fist. Some people call it just the breaking of bread. But anyway, that's just a few words on terminology. I just want to get out of the way before we get into it. I just want to answer one or two questions today about the subject of the Lord's Supper. We don't have time to exhaust this entire passage. God's word is inexhaustible, so we can't exhaust it anyway. But I just want to answer one or two questions. By the way, there are a lot of questions I'm not going to answer this morning. One, maybe because of the sake of time, maybe because of courage or lack thereof. Uh, no, a lot of questions I don't want to answer because the Bible doesn't answer. 
you may have some significant questions, and they are important questions. For instance, how often should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Answer, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, yeah, when you come together, do this often in remembrance of me. So do we do it every Sunday? Do we do it every time we come together? Do we do it once a month? Do we do it once a quarter? There are so many questions that come up that a local church needs to come together and make a decision on. Um, Doug, when you, were, you said earlier, uh, we're going to take a 10-minute break, and then we're going to come together to celebrate. That's our tradition here. Anything wrong with that? Please say no. There's nothing wrong with that. Some churches do it as part of their service. Some churches do it at the beginning of the service. Some do it afterwards. Some do it on a Sunday night when people come together. The, the Bible isn't precise on those things, and therefore we as a church have to come together and say, how is it we're going to do this? One question it's often asked is how do we, and, and again, we're Baptists, so we love using terminology that other people don't understand, how do we fence the table, whatever that means? Well, in other words, who can participate? You realize there are some churches where I could be here this morning and be a guest speaker but not be able to participate because I'm not a member of the local church? That's what that local church has decided, and they have every right in the world to do it. There are some churches that say you have to be a member of the church. Some say you have to be, have, you have to have been baptized by immersion or to participate in Lord's Supper. That's fine for the church to decide that. They'll watch a video in Sunday school of Sinclair Ferguson, but then they won't let him take communion during the morning service. And that's fine. I'm, I'm not making fun of that because we have to have some standards in how we see this playing out. But there are a lot of questions that the Bible's not clear. How young can a person be to be baptized? That's a question with which many churches struggle, and it's not an easy question. Because on the one hand, we don't want to, uh, we don't want to hurt a child that know you can't be, but on the other hand, we don't, we don't want to just baptize indiscriminately any child and, and have them have some kind of false assurances. These are questions that a church has to wrestle with. Uh, and, and, and those of you who are not in leadership, I would ask you to respect your leaders who, these are not easy questions. Hey, dice la Biblia, what does the Bible say? And the answer is, sometimes the Bible doesn't answer some of these questions. And therefore, we just have to, have, we have to come to our convictions. How do we do it? Do we distribute it to people, or do people come up front? <laughs> I have to tell a story I remembered one time in Cameroon. I had the privilege of preaching in Cameroon. And I'm sitting up front, and after I preached, I sat down, and we're sitting up front, and the, uh, actually facing the front, and I was sitting next to the missionary, and he, he slapped me on the leg, and he said, Nadine, when it comes time for the Lord's Supper, follow me. I said, okay. And he's like, okay, are you ready? I'm like, yes, Steve, I'm ready. All of a sudden, come on. And he jumps up, and I got behind him really quickly, and we, and we were the first two in line. Everybody came to the front to take communion. I'm thinking, why is this a big deal to what we found out is they had it was either seven or eight communion cups. Well, you do the math. <laughs> so if you were in the first seven or eight people, you were able to have a fresh communion cup. But after you partook, you would give the cup back to the person and they would refill it. And it was like it just kept going like the energizer bunny, kept going and going and going. And he wanted to make sure that both he and I were in the first few, so we had a clean, fresh cup. You might say, that's not sanitary. I'm concerned about the hygiene. Okay, fine, but that's just the way they did it. I have a friend who's been to India. It was part of a communion service where they had big, maybe like 300, 400 people in the service, and they had tables maybe about this size strategically placed a number of places around the room. And when it came time for communion, it was quiet, and people just were prayerful, and when they felt prayer, they would get up and go to the nearest table and take bread and take the grape juice or wine or whatever. Another question, you 
grape juice or wine? See all these questions. And our first question is, what does the Bible say? The problem is sometimes the Bible doesn't speak with extreme clarity on some things. And that's why we as churches have to come together and say, okay, here's how we will practice it here. And we need to have respect for that. In my church, we may practice it a little differently from how you do. I might find that out this morning. And you know what? That's fine. So some of those questions we can't answer. There are two questions I do want to answer this morning. First question, very quickly, what did Jesus mean by what is probably the four most controversial words in the Bible when he said the words, this is my body? What did he mean by that? We have it recorded in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and here in 1 Corinthians. We see it again and again and again. What did he mean by this is my body? It's a very simple sentence. Four words, this is my body. How hard is that to interpret? Well, if I could quote a former president from back in the 90s, it depends what is means. But pretty simple, this is my body. That means it had to be his body. Well, no, it doesn't necessarily. I am the door. Does that mean he's a door? Jesus is the Lamb of God. Did he walk around on all fours and say, bad? You see, there have been four views historically over what Jesus meant by this is my body. And not to bore you with history, but I love history, so I'll bore you a little bit. There's the Catholic view, which you may be aware of a big fancy word called transubstantiation, which is simply a fancy word of saying that when the priest gets up and says what he says, that the, 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 the wafer or the whatever and, and the, the wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, when you partake of communion in a Catholic church, what they call the Mass, you are actually literally, physically taking the body and the blood of Jesus Christ into you. And by the way, just as a quick aside, for those of us who are Baptists and disagree with that, and we have a chance sometimes to teach and preach, one time I was significantly younger and extremely naive. I had the chance to speak to a group of people, most of whom were Roman Catholic. And very unadvisedly and very foolishly, I kept saying again and again and again, trying to be evangelistic, I kept saying, you need to receive Jesus. You need to receive Jesus. You need to receive Jesus. And you know what almost everybody in the room thought? We do. Every Sunday. When we go to Mass. They believe they're receiving Jesus. So one view with which we would say the scriptures do not agree is what's called transubstantiation. Trans meaning across. The substance comes across. It used to be something, bread and wine, and it's now something else, body and blood. That's the Catholic view. The Lutheran view, Martin Luther probably, uh, it was called consubstantiation. Some Lutherans, Lutherans would disagree with the term. But they would say, no, no, no. It doesn't literally become the body and blood of Jesus, but the body and blood of Jesus, I mean, the, the presence of Jesus is, and they would use three prepositions, in, with, and under the elements. In other words, like a sponge. You dip a sponge in water, and the sponge doesn't cease to be a sponge. It's still a sponge. But the presence of water is in, with, and under that sponge. So they would believe when you're taking communion, you are taking Christ into you, in a sense. The Reformed view, or the Calvinistic view, was, no, Jesus in no way is physically present in the elements. But they would talk about a spiritual presence of Jesus. That Jesus is spiritually present. Now, between you and me, I've read multiple people who have written on this. Half the things I read, I would be in complete agreement with. And there's some things I've read that I'm not so certain about. 
The view that most Baptists hold was actually put forth by a Swiss reformer by the name of Ulrich Zwingli, the Zwinglian view, I love that name, uh, which just simply says it's a memorial. That the bread, oh, there's another question. Do you use actual bread? Do you use matzo? What do you use? Do you use grape juice? Do you use wine? We have a lot of questions we have to deal with, don't we? But the Zwinglian view says it, it, it's just a memorial. Jesus was using the, the elements as a picture of his body and, and of his blood. And, and therefore, when we partake of these elements, there's nothing spiritual about them. There's nothing changing as far as the elements are concerned. It's still just bread. It's still just grape juice or something like that. But it's to, it's to cause our minds to remember. And, and that's what we would hold to, that simply just as Jesus said, I am the door. He wasn't physically a door, but it was a picture. It was a metaphor. Just as he said, I am a vine. He wasn't physically a vine, but it was a, it was, he was speaking metaphorically the same way. As, and, and by the way, this is very common in the Gospel of John. Very common in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says things like, I am the temple. Remember he said, unless a man be born again, Nicodemus didn't quite get that, did he? And, and it was the same chapter 4, the woman at the well, unless you drink of the, the water that I give, he wasn't like a physical water, he was speaking metaphorically. Jesus did that a lot. He's doing the same thing here when he says, this is my body. So that's one question I want to look at this morning. But here's a bigger question. And if I bored you with all that historical stuff, you can come back and join in now. Okay? Here's my bigger question. Are you ready? Is it important? Partaking of the Lord's Supper, what we're about to do today, is it important? Well, hopefully you would answer yes, but the question is why. Why would you answer yes? Let me give a couple of reasons. Number one, as we said a few minutes ago, Jesus commanded it. Not about you, but if Jesus commands it, that's enough for it to be important. We read in Matthew, we read in Mark, we read in Luke, and we read right here in this very passage in verses 24, 25, 26, do this in remembrance of me. So number one, it's commanded. Number two, do you see the sternness with which Paul deals with the problems concerning the Lord's Supper? You know, there were problems other way. You know, in, you read 1 Corinthians. The church in Corinth had problem after problem after problem. And Paul would say, okay, he would deal with this a little bit. He would deal, but nowhere in 1 Corinthians does he speak as sternly as he does here in chapter 11 when he's dealing with problems concerning the Lord's Supper. Shall I commend you? I will not. He's adamant because when it comes to the Lord's Supper, although we may just see it as something we do once a month, to the Apostle Paul, this is a big deal. It's extremely important. I don't know if I'd mention this or not, but I will. I just mentioned history. You know, we were just teaching church history in Ecuador a couple weeks ago, and two things I'd like to emphasize. One is the people on whose shoulders we stand, and number two, the doctrines that people were willing to die for. In the 4th and 5th century, people were willing to die for the deity of Christ and the Trinity. In the 15th century, people were willing to die for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. In the 1500s, there was a king in England by the name of Henry VIII. He was, he was. Uh, <coughs> But after Henry died, I had a son Edward, he reigned for a little bit, but he was gone. But then a female became queen. Her name was Mary. Anybody know what she, no, not Queen Mary the ship, okay? <laughs> queen Mary, she had a nickname. She was known as Bloody Mary. I'm not going to make a joke about that name. 
because of the seriousness that brought it about. Why was she called Bloody Mary? Because of all the people she put to death. Some estimates say 288 martyrs. Some say 300. Some say a little bit more than 300 people she put to death. And you know what was the one primary doctrine that she put people to death over? Teaching on the Lord's Supper. If you did not embrace the Roman Catholic teaching on the Lord's Supper, you would be put to death. The first martyr was a man by the name of John Rogers. He's pretty, he should be well known because he was the one who finished William Tyndale's translation. Tyndale was translating the Bible into English. He didn't finish the entire thing before he died. But there was a follower of his, an acquaintance of his by the name of John Rogers. John Rogers finished Tyndale's translation. John Rogers was the first martyr under Queen Bloody Mary. Why? Because of what we're talking about later this morning. Famous people like Latimer and Ridley, Thomas Cranmer. This is a big deal that we are going to do together this morning as a church family. You say, I can't believe they would actually put people to death over this. Well, as one preacher I was listening to one time said, yeah, maybe their problem was brutality our problem in our day is superficiality. We just don't think it's a big deal. Very quickly, in the last minutes that I have, when, we come, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, I believe we need to look in three directions. We need to look back to the past, we need to look now at the present, and we need to look to the future. Let me explain what I mean by that. First, we need to look back to the past. What were they celebrating when Jesus instituted this? They were celebrating Passover. Think about that. Ever since the 1400s, depending upon how you date Moses, not date Moses, but you know what I mean. <laughs> when you date Moses as having lived. Probably 1400s. 1400 years. The Passover. And Jesus has the audacity to co-opt Passover and says the whole thing was pointing to him. That is an incredible Truth. Passover. The heart of the Jesus. I mean, what was Passover? Passover was a celebration of deliverance. From slavery to freedom. But what was the slavery? Well, Passover was slavery in Egypt. And deliverance was freedom from Egypt to the freedom of the promised land. And Jesus says, oh yeah, 1,400 years. I know, I know, I know. But this is just a picture. And this entire picture pointed forward to... And the deliverance he would bring from slavery to freedom. But what is the slavery? Not in a physical land called Egypt. Our slavery was what? Sin. Satan and the devil. Satan, sin. We're delivered from that to freedom. Not some physical parcel of land in the Middle East. But the promised rest that God delivers us. Jesus co-ops Passover. Well, maybe he's not really co-opting because he's saying this is the purpose of it all along was simply to point forward to me. Again, I ask you to just think about the audacity of what Jesus is doing there. He's saying Passover was all about me. Amen. He goes on here and I love it in verse, what is it, 25 where he says in the same way he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now again, 
we're sitting here in 2018 in a comfortable room in Michigan, but let's go back 2,000 years. We're now sitting in an upper room with a bunch of Jews who know their Old Testaments, and Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Those words would have rocked their world. The new covenant? He's talking about what Jeremiah promised. He's talking about what Isaiah promised. He's talking about what Ezekiel promised. This new covenant that God would institute. This new covenant that God would make. And Jesus is saying, I am about to institute this new covenant. That's a big deal. If you don't understand that, I'll give you a choice. Do you want to live under the old covenant or under the new covenant? You see, there's a huge difference in those two covenants. The old covenant, there's a little two-letter word that came up again and again and again. Anybody know what the word is? If, if you obey, then these blessings. If you obey, then these blessings. If you obey, then these blessings. But if you disobey, then these curses. If you disobey these curses, if you disobey these curses. You see, the word in the old covenant was the word if. When you look at the new covenant, can you guess what two-letter word is not present in the new covenant? You never see the word if. But you see is God just simply saying, I will, I will, I will. I will be their God. I will forgive their sins. I will not remember their sins or their iniquities anymore. You see, any covenant that comes to us with the word if, my friends, we are all in trouble. But a covenant that comes to us where God says, I will, that's the kind of covenant we need. And Jesus is saying, I am doing away with that old covenant and I am instituting a new covenant where God is saying, I will do everything for you that you need. So we look back. We look at the Passover becoming the Lord's Supper. We see Jesus doing that. We look back at the promise of the new covenant that Jesus is now effecting by the shedding of his blood. We look back. Here's another word. Look at verse 23, if you would, please. And again, I realize for the sake of time we're hurrying, but you may not think so. It says, on the night when he was betrayed... He was betrayed. Betrayed by whom? Well, one level, he was betrayed by Judas, wasn't he? Of course. But is Judas the only one who betrayed Jesus? What happened to the other 11 followers? They stuck right with him, didn't they? No, they didn't. Strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, right? So there's a sense where the other 11 betrayed him as well. In fact, one in particular, Jesus said, this night you will betray me. And he said, not I, I will never betray you. And Jesus said, what? For the rooster crows? Three times. What did Peter do? I don't know the man. So yeah, on the night he was betrayed, he was betrayed by Judas, he was betrayed by the eleven, he was betrayed in particular by Simon three times, even though Jesus had told him that. And you know what? The betraying of Jesus did not end that night. That was 2,000 years ago, and for the past 2,000 years, people have been betraying Jesus, including me. And I would imagine from time to time, including you as well. And yet Jesus institutes this supper that says we are free. We are free. If we belong to him, we are free. One more thing as we look back. 
It says in verse 24, he gave thanks and he broke the bread. I never saw this until a couple months ago. He broke the bread. Think with me for a moment about what Jesus knew. That night, what did he know was about to happen? Well, he knew he was going to be betrayed by Judas. He knew the eleven would leave him. He knew Peter would be would betray him three times. But what else did Jesus know was going to happen within the next 24 hours? He knew he was going to be put on trial. He knew that he was going to be spit upon. He knew he was going to be scourged. He knew he was going to have a crown of thorns jammed down on his head. He knew he was going to go and hang on a cruel Roman cross, dying the most shameful and ignominious deaths possible, most painful death possible. And above, above and beyond all the physical, he knew he was going to bear the wrath of Almighty God for all of the sins of his people. And what does Jesus do? He gives thanks. My friends, just think about that. He gave thanks. And he, he broke the bread, knowing full well what the breaking of that bread would signify over the next 24 hours. And yet he broke the bread. And he gave thanks as he did it. Because the breaking of that bread, which signified the breaking of his body, would purchase your and my salvation. And therefore he gave thanks. And therefore we give thanks as well. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we look back. But the passage also tells us we look now. Look at verse 7, 27. You eat of the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner. You're guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Therefore, we need to examine ourselves. My friends, I hope you have taken time to examine yourself before coming here. Now again, do not misunderstand the Lord's Supper is not for sinless people. That's the whole point. My favorite accusation, the Pharisees brought many accusations against Jesus. My favorite accusation that the Pharisees brought against Jesus, the beginning of Luke chapter 15, when they said, this man receives sinners. And I say, amen. I have hope. You see, the Lord's Supper is not for sinless people. It's for people like you and people like me who desperately need his forgiveness and his ongoing shed blood and the righteousness that he has given us. Oh, we desperately need that. So I'm not saying we need to be perfect in order to partake of the Lord's Supper. But what I am saying is we need to examine ourselves because Paul goes on to say, this is why some of you are sick and some have even died because this is a big deal. You have some sin in your life right now that you're just toying with or you're okay with? Oh, what a lie it is to say, Jesus' body and blood were broken and spilled for me to deliver me from my sins while I continue to just enjoy my little pet sin over here. What a lie, what a sham. And Paul says, no, examine yourself. No, you're not perfect. Interpersonal relationships. You know, we don't make enough of that. Our ability to just get along with one another at one point, was it Matthew chapter 5 when he says you're about to offer your gift at the altar and all of a sudden you realize that someone has something against you? What, is, what does Jesus say? Just stop it. Don't even go through this pretense of worship until you go make it right with your brother. So if someone has something against you, guess what? Your move. But in Matthew 18, he says if you have something against someone else, what do you do? 
Go to your brother. So if someone has something against you, it's your move. If you have something against someone else, guess what? It's your move. It's always your move. And Paul's saying, you have something against somebody else, somebody else has something against you, you better make it right, or even partaking of the Lord's Supper is a sham. And God does not look politely upon that. Some of you are sick. Disordinance. Seriously enough. So I challenge you. Have you examined yourself this morning? There are times as Christians for us to say, you know what? I'm going to let the cup pass by me today. I need to make something right before I can rightfully partake of the Lord's Supper. Think about it. So we look back, we look at the present, but we also look at the future. What did Jesus say? We're to do this, we're to do this whenever you come together, we're to do this often, but we're always to do it half. Proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, even this morning, even today as we partake of the Lord's Supper, yes, we look back at everything Jesus had done, how he was betrayed, how his body was broken, how the new covenant was instituted, how he pointed out the Passover for all those thousands of years, pointed forward to him. Yes, we do that. Present look, we examine ourselves. Lord, if there be any wicked way in me, please reveal it so that I can repent of it and have it made right. There's a present look, but oh, my friends, there is a forward look as well. We do this realizing there is coming a day where we won't have to do this apart from him. There's coming a day where we will enjoy a supper, a full meal called the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will be together around God's throne with people from every nation, every tribe, every language, every people group gathered together praising the one who gave himself to purchase us. Passive when it comes to the Lord's Supper? I don't think so. Do this in remembrance of me. And by the way, it's not just remembering facts. One of the things also that I noticed, and I'll finish with this, Jesus doesn't say do this by remembering my death, although I think that's included. Do this by remembering my resurrection. He says, do this in remembrance of me. When we come to the Lord's table, our focus is to be where our focus is always to be. And that is front and center on the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Father, we're thankful that you have instituted this because, Lord, we are a forgetful people. Lord, we can even be fully engaged this morning as we take part in this meal, this, this remembrance, this memorial. And within hours, we will have forgotten it. And Lord, in your wisdom, you have given this to us to remind us again and again and again and again of our need to look at Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So we do this then this morning in a little bit. We do this in remembrance of the one who came, the one who was betrayed, the one whose body was broken, his blood was spilled, the one to whom Passover pointed. We do this because you have cleansed us from our sin. And Lord, we still struggle with it, we still fall, we still get our feet dirty and we need to have them cleaned and washed. But Lord, we do this looking forward to a day when Jesus comes again and there'll be no more sin, no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more separation. No more humiliation of confession. But we will be in the presence of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And we will be able to begin to enjoy 
that fullness of joy and those pleasures forevermore. So Lord, help our minds to be fully engaged today as we partake of the Lord's Supper, looking back, looking at the present, and looking to the future. And we do so because of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. In the brown hymnal, number 310. 310 in the brown hymnal. We finish singing the song. We'll take a 10-minute break and then regather when you hear the music. And we'll come together for the Lord's table. 310, let's stand together and sing.
Amen. We're going to take a 10-minute break and then regather for the Lord's table. We're dismissed.
from the Brown Hymnal. Let's sing number 501. 501 in the Brown Hymnal. <laughs> 